Bible there. If you haven't brought one, use the one in the pew. And we turn to Ephesians 2 this evening because what I'm asking you to do for the next few moments is not actually to listen to me, but rather I'm asking you to listen to what God has to say to us from this part of his word, which he has written down for us and for our good. So let's bow our heads, shall we, and let's pray and ask for help to genuinely listen. God, our gracious Father in heaven, thank you that every part of your word is a gift from you, written down for your our goods as we listen to it. God our Father, whatever our state before you this evening, please grant us ears to hear all that you would have us hear. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In November 2000, Mr. Morris Micklewhite, the son of a Billingsgate porter and a charlady, went to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. He knelt before her. He was touched on each shoulder by her sword and came away as Sir Maurice Micklewhite or Sir Michael Caine, as he's better known. Now, whatever our view may be of Michael Caine as a person or as an actor, there is something enchanting, isn't there, about a rags-to-riches story. Our hearts warm when we hear about someone who starts out with nothing, but through hard work, through determination, they beat the odds, they grab an opportunity, they make a success of things. So we think of the person who builds up a business from scratch. The person who starts as a humble waiter and ends up owning a whole chain of restaurants. The boy from Dunblane Primary School who becomes the talk of the nation at Wimbledon. We love those sorts of stories, don't we? They capture our imagination. Now what I want to tell you tonight is that this part of the Bible describes the greatest ever rags to riches story. It's an amazing story. In one sense it's a unique story, but as well as being a unique story, it's a story that's actually shared by millions of people throughout the world. Because it's the true Christian story. A story that defines who and what a Christian really is. It's a story that's happened to me. It's a story that has already happened, I'm sure, to many of us who are here. It's a story which, if it hasn't happened to you yet, I pray might even happen to you this evening. What is the story? Well, let me take you through it. We, we have, as every story, need to start at the beginning. The rags before the riches. What these verses say, all Christians were before they became Christians. What they were, then, is our first heading. And what we discover is that the story of the Christian starts not in the ghettos, not in the gutter, not even actually in the pigsty, but the story actually starts even lower than that. 
it starts in the grave. Two words sum up what these verses say a Christian was. They are the words dead and doomed. Look how the reading starts in verse 1. It was written to Christians, remember. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Christians were dead people. In most major hospitals this evening, one of the most tragic situations is where men and women are on life support machines. Although they're technically alive, they are as good as dead. Because although a machine is keeping their hearts beating, other symptoms of life are missing. They're unable to communicate with those they love. There's no response when their senses are stimulated. In one sense, yes, they're alive, but in another sense, they are dead. It was similar, these verses say, for every true Christian. They were dead, not physically dead, but spiritually dead. I read the story some time ago now of a teenager, one of whose best friends died very suddenly in a field. Let me quote this man who talked about his friend's death. They were only teenagers when it happened. Other friends came running up from the fields to tell me that he had dropped dead there. A Land Rover took his body home where it was laid out in the front room. The family asked if I would like to go and see him. Two nights earlier, I'd spent the whole evening with him, talking. Now I was alone with him again. My first reaction was to speak to him, but the prostrate body did not answer. I spoke again. There was no reply. He could neither see, nor hear, nor talk, nor move, nor could he even want to. He certainly could not bring himself back to life. He was dead. And that is precisely the picture used in these verses. Spiritually, the Christian was dead. Spiritually unresponsive to God. Spiritually unable to respond to God. And that's what verse 1 means when it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What are transgressions? Well, to transgress is really very simple. It means to cross over a boundary. So you're out walking in, a country, in the countryside and you see a notice with those words, trespassers will be prosecuted. It could just as accurately say, transgressors will be prosecuted. You walk over this mark, you climb over this fence and you're in big trouble. And the message God our maker has for us is that transgressors will be prosecuted. God, our maker, has set boundaries for us to live by. They're summarised but in what we call the Ten Commandments. They're like the parallel lines of a railway track. God has provided these parallel lines for us to walk up and that will be the way to live. That's a good way to live because God, our maker, knows what's best for us. But we transgress. We cross over those boundaries that God has set. When we try and run our lives outside the tracks he's laid, 
And you know only too well, I'm sure, the disaster that happens when a train is derailed. And while the word transgressions refers to the time someone has stepped over the boundaries, the word sins refers to their failure to meet the standard God has set. The word to sin actually means to fall short of the target. So imagine poor Andrew Murray yesterday, were you watching it? Wasn't it a shame he lost? Probably a good thing for him. But you know how he got tired in the the third, fourth and fifth sets? And all those shots that he'd hit, and he hit them and they were meant to go over over the net, but what did they do? They fell short of the net. They didn't cross the net. They, they fell short of their targets. And that's what it means to sin. We fall short of the way God would have us live. And every true Christian, you see, as the Bible describes what a Christian really is, is someone who says, they read these verses in Ephesians 2 and they say, yes, you've got it right, God, about me. Before I became a Christian, I was dead in my transgressions and my sins. I was spiritually dead and the symptoms of my spiritual deadness was that I was someone who was continually crossing over your boundaries. I was someone who was continually falling short of those standards. And if you look, it says, the Christian is someone who says in this, I was just like everyone else. If you look at verse 2, Look how it continues. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. You see, the Christian isn't saying he or she is any worse than anyone else as a sinner. But he is saying that he is just as much a sinner as anyone else. Because transgressions of sins are what comes naturally to us all. We all by nature gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. We all by nature follow the sinful desires of our heart. And verse 3 goes on to tell us that this means that we are all by nature doomed. Look at verse 3. The end of verse 3. Like the nature we were, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Do you know, I had some hesitation using that word doomed. Because I come from the generation that grew up watching Dad's Army. And doomed is that word which makes me think of Private Fraser. You know, we're all doomed, Captain Mannering, doomed. And we all laugh, don't we? But it's actually a very serious word. It sums up the truth that those who transgress God's law, those who sin, who fall short of God's standards, are the objects of God's wrath. Back in the days of the Cold War, it was reported that the USA and the USSR always had nuclear weapons aimed at strategic places in each other's country. At the touch of a button, some strategic place in either country could have been destroyed. This phrase in verse 3, objects of wrath, 
provides a picture of God's wrath, God's anger, being aimed very directly and very precisely at those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, God's wrath isn't like our anger. It's not bad temper, so that God might fly off the handle at any moment without warning. God's wrath isn't spite or malice or animosity or revenge. God isn't, as it were, in a bad mood. He doesn't, like some of us dads often do, have an over-the-top reaction in the heat of of the moment. No, God's anger, the Bible says, is his perfect, his fair, his right, his measured, his controlled hostility to evil. And it is rightly aimed, directed at all those who transgress his good and right instructions. And every true Christian is someone who says, Yep, that was true of me. I was not only dead in my transgressions and sins, but as a result I was also doomed, and rightly so, I deserved to be punished by God. I was baptised in this church down here, I think it was 25 years ago. And when any Christian is baptised, the process of baptism symbolises what a Christian used to be. Going down into the water at a baptismal service is a picture of both death and judgment. As a Christian is baptised, they are saying, as a sinner, I was dead spiritually. I was doomed. God's anger was rightly aimed against me. But, and it's a big but, but every true Christian can say, although that's what I was, It's not what I am now. And if you glance down at verse 4 now, you'll see it starts with that wonderful word, but. It's a little word, isn't it? But isn't it a great word? There's been a plane crash, but no one was injured. I lost my wallet, but it was returned to me with nothing missing. My alarm didn't go off this morning, but I still got to work in time. The word but often introduces good news when things are looking bleak. And that's how it's used here. Christians, they were dead and doomed. But that's not what they are now. What they are is what they have been resurrected and rescued. Now we're going to look at these verses. But will you notice verse 5 particularly? Look for two phrases. First of all, the phrase in verse 5, made alive, made us alive, and secondly, the word saved. Aren't those words the opposite of dead and doomed? And this being made alive, this resurrected, and this saved being rescued, it's the other half of the rags-to-riches story of the Christian. And again, that's what's symbolised in Christian baptism. As a Christian is baptised and goes down into the water, it depicts death and judgment. But as the person then comes up out of the water, it symbolises resurrection from the dead and rescue from judgment. And what these verses describe is the miracle 
that has happened to every Christian. Do you know, I sometimes worry that we don't realise that whenever anyone becomes a Christian, it is a miracle. It is something that no human being can do. It's something only God can do. You see, let me take you back to that living room I described. As that teenager looked at the dead body of his friends. Will you listen to what that teenager said? He said, I would have given all I possessed to be able to speak a word which would have raised my friend to life. I spoke for him, but my words had no power. And God deliberately, I believe, describes the Christian's position before they became a Christian as dead to stress the utter hopelessness of that situation and the impossibility of someone who is dead being able to resurrect and rescue themselves. And it therefore surely raises the question, well, how did it happen that the Christian is no longer dead and doomed? And the answer these verses give is a very simple one. Do you know what it is? God did it. Look down to the last verse we read. Will you, verse 10? The man Paul, whom God used to write these words, says, writing to Christians, for we are God's workmanship. One of the television programs we sometimes video and watch on my day off is University Challenge. Now, when we watch that, we, we keep a score to see who can answer the most questions. And normally I maybe get one and Sandra gets two. In other words, we don't do very well. But usually in University Challenge, there's what's called the picture round. Okay? And they'll put a picture of a, a work of art on the screen. And then the teams have to say whose workmanship which artist was the source of that picture? And I never do very well at that round for my armchair. I can spot maybe a Monet or a Picasso, because they're odd, or a Turner or a Lowry. But that's about it. But the point is that workmanship of some people is very distinctive. I'm going to embarrass my mother. Every week for 12 years since we've been in London, she has written to me and Sandra every Sunday afternoon. And, and, and when the letter comes through, it's always on a Tuesday morning, it comes through the letterbox, I know it's from Mum. Why? Because her writing's so distinctive. Sorry for embarrassing you, Mum. Her writing's so distinctive. We recognise someone's workmanship, don't we? And these verses are telling us that the resurrecting and rescuing and, of dead and doomed sinners is a distinctive work of God. It's something only God can do. You see, the rags to riches stories of the Bible is like no other story you will hear. Most rags to riches stories are about someone succeeding because of their own hard graft or their determination. So Andrew Murray has hit thousands and millions of tennis balls. He's worked hard to get where he's got to. But that's not the case here. Every true Christian has no choice but to say, do you know I'm not what I once was and I am what I now am not because of anything I've done but only because of what God has done for me by grace, through Jesus, by faith. 
Uh, Will you follow through with me as I read from verse 4? Notice that all the emphasis is on God's actions. Look at from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace basically means doing something good and generous for those who don't deserve it. And the stress of these verses is on the lavish way God has acted to resurrect and rescue dead and doomed sinners who deserve nothing good from him. So just look at the phrases used. Verse 4, great love, rich mercy. Verse 7, the incomparable riches of his grace, his kindness to us. Verse 8, the gift of God. Let me tell you a story. It happened to a, a minister that I met at a conference for pastors. He lives in the Devon area. And he told of how he had an unexpected adventure one day. He was out for a walk along the coast on some rocks. And too late he discovered that he'd walked so far out to these isolated rocks that he was cut off by the tides. The tide rose and rose. And there was nothing he could do except climb up the biggest rock that was there and hope the tide didn't cover it and then wait for the tide to turn. So he sat on this rock, he thought he was okay. And as he sat there, he saw a speck in the sky. He wondered what the speck was and as he he watched it, it came nearer and nearer and he thought, oh, it's a helicopter. I wonder what that helicopter's doing. And then it dawned on him that it was coming for him. Obviously, someone on the shore had, had rung up, had seen his plight, rung for help, uh, and then he described the, this, this guy, he described how the helicopter winchman, you can imagine the scene, the helicopter winchman was lowered down to rescue him and greeted him with those immortal words, Who's been a silly boy then? <laughs> and then, listen carefully, And then the winchman lifted the stranded minister with him back to the safety of the helicopter. Now that is not unlike what is being described in these verses. The Christian knows that they haven't just been silly. They've been rebellious. They didn't deserve that God should resurrect them and rescue them, but the Christian has discovered that God has taken the initiative without them first calling for help. And how? Well, the Lord Jesus came into the world, the perfect Son of God. And he came on a, on a resurrecting and rescuing mission. A mission that took him to the cross where he died taking upon himself the doom, the wrath of God that sinners deserve. It's as if the nuclear weapon of God's wrath that is rightly aimed at me was instead diverted 
and aims straight at Jesus and fires. And if ever there was an act of grace, it was that. It was an act of immense grace, of great love, of rich mercy, almost unbelievable kindness. And the Christian has discovered that Jesus did that so that God's fair anger against them and their sin might be exhausted, might be used up. And they've discovered that God then raised Jesus from the dead, proving that he'd accepted the death of Jesus on the cross as the satisfaction of his just anger. And what these verses then say is that just as that stranded minister was raised up with his rescuer to the safety of the helicopter, so the true Christian is raised from spiritual deadness with the risen Lord Jesus and given a guaranteed secure place in his eternal home in heaven. And you see again, think with me of what you've probably seen at baptismal services below this pulpit. As a person being baptised goes down into the water, it not only symbolises their admission they were dead and doomed, it's also a picture of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. When the Son of God, the perfect Jesus Christ, went under the judgement he did not deserve and willingly suffered the punishment sinners deserved. And then as a Christian is lifted out of the water, it's a picture of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead and the fact that united to him, the Christian has been resurrected to a new life, an eternal life. Now if that's not a good rags to riches story, I don't know what is, do you? but it's the rags to riches story of every true Christian. They've been resurrected to new life, rescued from the wrath of God, not because of anything they've done, but only through faith. And that leaves us asking the question, doesn't it? What is faith? Well, faith is trusting only in what God has done by grace through Jesus. No Christian was resurrected and rescued by anything they did. Look again at verse 8 and 9. It says it so clearly, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There's no Christian who says, aren't I good, I resurrected and raised myself, and rescued myself. No Christian can say that. What they can say though is, Jesus Christ has resurrected and rescued me and I'll boast about him. And that happened when I put my faith, when I put my trust, my confidence solely in what God has done by grace through Jesus for me. And it's only when an individual personally trusts the Lord Jesus that the rags-to-riches story of this passage becomes their story too. And so the question I need to ask you this evening is, is the story of these verses your story this evening? Is this death-to-life story your story? 
all of us here this evening either were or still are dead and doomed. But only those of us who have put our trust, have put our faith in what God has done through Jesus have been resurrected and rescued. Have you been resurrected and rescued? I'm not asking you, see, if you come regularly to Charlotte Chapel on a Sunday. I'm not asking you, have your parents or your best friends been resurrected or rescued? I'm not asking you if you're a regular attender at some activity at Charlotte Chapel. I'm not even asking you if you've been baptised, because actually there are people who probably have been baptised who actually haven't been resurrected and rescued. I'm asking, have you personally put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because it's only then that you will be resurrected and rescued. And if you haven't, you are still dead and doomed. Oh, you may say, well, Johnny, can you just tell me what it means to put my faith in him? Well, I borrowed a stool from my brother. It's a three-legged stool. And I want you to think of it as representing what we've learned tonight from these verses. Let me summarise. The first leg is the fact that we're all sinners. We're dead and doomed. The second leg is that God has acted by grace through Jesus to resurrect and rescue sinners through his death on the cross and his resurrection. The third leg is that God promises to resurrect and rescue all who will trust solely in what Jesus has done. Now let me put this stool down. At the moment, I am not trusting in that stool, am I? If I were to go over it and go like this, I'm not really trusting in the stool, am I? Because I'm not putting all my weight on it. But if, well I'll do it anyway, if I do this, what am I doing now? I'm trusting in this stool. And if we are to put our trust in Jesus Christ, it has to be total trust. I can't say, well, there's something good about me and God will accept me in some way because there's something good about me. He'll save me because of something I've done. No. Trusting Jesus means I'm going to put my whole weight upon him for now and for all eternity. And if you've done that, it is your greatest need. And you can do that now by praying to the Lord Jesus, by saying, Lord Jesus, I don't deserve to be resurrected or rescued by you. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need your resurrection and rescue. Lord Jesus, you died to resurrect and rescue sinners like me. Please rescue and resurrect me. Do you know if you pray that prayer, do you know what you'll discover? If you look at verse 10, you'll see at the end, I love verse 10, you'll discover that the Lord Jesus has good works which God prepared for an advance for you to do. You see, what's the evidence that someone has been resurrected and rescued? It means that their life has been changed. Oh, it doesn't mean they're perfect. They still will sometimes follow the evil desires of their hearts 
but now they desire and their aim by God's grace alone because of the new life he's given them is to actually walk in those good works that they discover God has planned in advance for them to do. And if this evening you claim to be a true Christian, are you walking day by day in those good works that God has planned in advance for you to do? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. I'm going to say a brief prayer. And if God has been speaking to you tonight about becoming a true Christian, a resurrected and rescued person, why not use this prayer as your own, as a way of putting your trust in Jesus Christ? Lord Jesus Christ, I know that I don't deserve to be resurrected or rescued by you. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need to be resurrected and rescued. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to die for sinners like me. Thank you that you rose from the dead to give me new life. Lord Jesus, please rescue and resurrect me that I might start to do those good works that you have planned in advance for me to do. Please hear my prayer, Lord Jesus.